On July 6, 1944, in Hartford, Connecticut, excited ticket holders hurried into the Big Top to see the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth. What started as a day filled with joy and wonder ended in terror and chaos when a fire broke out during the performance, burning the Big Top to the ground. Was it an accident or arson? I'm Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. Hello. Welcome to another fun-filled episode of Grimm. This sounds like we're going back in time pretty far for this one. Mm. An oldie but goodie, perhaps? It is, yeah. 1940s, which I mean, unlike the 1980s is more than 20 years ago, you know? (laughs) Are there perhaps wagons of any sort? I don't don't believe so, no. (laughs) Maybe super wagons. (laughs) Definitely supers were involved in the making of this episode. (laughs) Uh, yeah, today we're talking about the Hartford Circus Fire, which was one of the worst fire disasters in U.S. history. Hmm. Um, and before we get into the very sad, um, very chaotic, depressing details, um, I just have to s- open with uh, my favorite bad pun, which is, <laughs> um, did you guys hear about the fire at the circus? Oh, I know. It, it was intense. It was <laughs> intense. Yeah. Yes. I figured we'd start with it because it's going to not be as yes. funny later oh, no. on. Oh, okay. Wait. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. I like thank it. you. Sorry. I got there. Okay. Now that we got that out of the way. So our grave retelling today happened on July 6th, 1944 in Hartford, Connecticut. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus was in town and it was known as the greatest show on earth. Mm-hmm. It was a typical sticky, hot, humid, sunny July day in the city. It was in the 90s. There was a world war going on, so the majority of the patrons Mm. headed to see the circus were women and children. This Mm. was actually only one month after D-Day. So with World War II raging, the circus was just the getaway that everyone needed, especially with those that were still in the United States. A lot of them, especially people in Hartford, were pulling double shifts in factories like Colt Firearms, mm. Pratt & Whitney, and Sikorsky to keep up with the demands of war. Which are all um, companies that are, or factories that are in the Hartford area, right? I know Colt Firearms was mm-hmm. in Hartford. I don't know, Pratt and & Whitney prob- and Sikorsky probably had locations in right. Hartford at that time. I don't yeah. know if they still do, but... Or at least close by. Yes, Definitely in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the war, too, there are actually many travel restrictions in place because mm-hmm. the needs of the war took priority. So due to this, the circus was actually set to arrive in Hartford from Providence, Rhode Island for a matinee show the day prior on July 5th. They ended up being late and they were also shorthanded because of the war. They mm-hmm. lost a lot of performers and people that were working in the circus. Um, so they were understaffed and... <laughs> and understaffed. <laughs> so, I was gonna say, so this is perhaps the B squad for the circus. It is not the greatest show on earth. It is, like, it's the okayest. It's the okayest show. On earth. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. So they ended up being late, and they had to miss the matinee show. And there were only two matinee shows scheduled while the circus was in town. 
because the prior day's matinee show was canceled, there was likely higher attendance at the show on July Mm. 6th than there otherwise would have been. Canceling a show is a bad omen in the circus world. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't either. The circus workers were on edge, but the evening show on July 5th went off without a hitch. Uh, That may have allayed some of their fears. Mm. The show back then did not occur in a big arena or stadium like we're used to seeing Hmm. today. It was held in a 19-ton big top that could accommodate 9,000 patrons. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to imagine something that big. There were about 7,000 people in attendance that day. I saw various numbers mm-hmm. between six and eight thousand was the most common a lot of the articles landed on seven thousand mm-hmm. probably as the average but i went to a concert the other night at mohegan mm-hmm. sun which is a huge arena that mm. arena holds and for those who are not from connecticut mohegan sun arena is a giant arena in one of our large casinos that holds ten thousand people but if you go to one of the concerts where the stage is set up on one end they cut off mm-hmm. that yep. back part of the stadium so the rest of it holds about 7,000 packed. Because when I went to the show, mm-hmm. I was talking to the guys and they were like, oh, there's 7,000 people here. And I had done this research oh. and that blew my mind to think yep. 7,000 yeah. people in this huge built arena versus they, they just built all these bleachers in this giant big top. In the and 1940s too. Exactly. In the 1940s. Like thinking that if I had done this research and then been in that case, I would have had a little bit of anxiety thinking about if anything happened and getting out. But that's in today where there's exit signs and ways to get out and people helping. I cannot, I, I can't imagine that's quite how it was it would in the 40s. It would still be absolutely, yeah, absolute exactly. pandemonium. Think mm-hmm. about when it's when it's halftime or when there's an intermission or any of these mm-hmm. big sporting events or concerts. Oh, yeah. And everybody rushes the exits to go to the bathroom. And that's mm-hmm. not even an emergency. Exactly. Well, I, it might be an emergency. I don't know. <laughs> it depends it on what you've been drinking. That the night. issue <laughs> might, it might be pressing. <laughs> The tent covered more than 1.5 acres. This thing's huge. <laughs> Ginormous. Damn. Ginormous. Okay. So, I mean, it needs to be that big to fit yeah. 7,000 people. The elephants wow. and the tigers and bears, oh my, oh my. as well. Yep. Yeah. Right. And I will post a picture of the diagram. There's there's like a layout of how it was set up. That was very helpful to me. Okay. I'll post that on our Instagram. But in the center, you had the three rings mm-hmm. that they typically have. And then there were various sections that had um, bleachers and then a different section with loose chairs, Mm. basically. So I'm smirking because when you said it had three rings, I I am remembering going to the circus as a child and being like, where are the three rings like for Barnum and Bailey's? Because like I was probably at like the whatever the big arena is in Providence. I can't Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's called right now, like the Dunkin Donuts Center or something. And they didn't have rings because you got gypped. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think so. I don't remember rings. Honestly, my most vivid memory is a souvenir cup that I took home from there that was white and it had a tiger as the handle on it. Wow. It's a pretty sweet cup. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I don't have that today, though. So it's a fond childhood <laughs> memory. So much yeah, for I a souvenir. Remember, I don't remember the performers. <laughs> I don't remember anything. I literally remember taking home a cup. <laughs> you know, I'm really going to think of that when I go somewhere with my child to make memories <laughs> yeah. and they want the object. And I'm going to say, no, it's about making memories. No, it's about the no, object. No, it's about the thing. Yeah. It's about mm-hmm. the object. So go to Target. <laughs> I'll remember that. I'll remember that. The show that day was scheduled to begin around 2 p.m. The first act was the Big Cats. It involved showgirls dressed in bright yellow military costumes, taming others in lion costumes, and then they brought out the real animals, including lions and tigers. Around 2.40 p.m., the flying Walendas, or great Walendas, they were called both things in the articles I read. What is the second word? 
there? Well, Len does. It's their, their last name. It's their last name. Oh. Okay. It's a family of acrobatic, high-flying I, acrobatic that artists. That is a circus terminology I was not familiar with. Thank it you. is not. It is a last name. <laughs> so uh, they took the stage to perform their high-wire acrobatic, ac- <clears throat> acrobatic stunts. It was around that time that a fire had started about 20 feet south of the main entrance on the side wall of the tent. Around 2.42, one of the performers noticed the fire and yelled out, the tent's on fire. The band leader quickly had the circus band start playing Stars and Stripes Forever, which was a warning to performers that something was wrong and that they should exit the tent. And the signal was a way to alert circus performers without causing panic and alarm among the patrons. Which this is, is giving me goosebumps. That's me too. That's and that's so, so smart. Very yeah. smart. So I had to look it up. We all know what Stars and Stripes Forever is, but I just didn't know what it was. <laughs> it's one of those things that you know the song when you hear it, but you yeah. had no idea that's what it was called. Right. So this yep. is the song. Okay. So we all we all definitely know that song, but I just didn't know that that's what it was called. Should we be exiting the building right now? I think so. Maybe. Uh, oh, actually, I know if I should be exiting the building right now. <laughs> Band started playing that song. The ringmaster tried to tell everyone to stay calm, but the power had cut out, so no one heard him over the loudspeaker. 2.43 is when the first alarm sounds to alert nearby fire stations of the blaze. And it's at that point that absolute hell breaks loose in that big top. Panicked patrons ran for the nine exits in the tent, but some were blocked. Two of the main exits were blocked by these large metal chutes that led the animals in and out of the tent Mm. into the cages within. Okay, that makes sense. So there were were two cages inside the tent and then two cages Mm -hmm. outside of the tent, and they had these metal chutes that Mm -hmm. transported them between the two, and those were blocking two of the main exits. And presumably very heavy. Things you can't just shove out of the way. Correct. Very large. And um, people were trying to climb over them. Some people were actually clawed by the panicked cats as they were trying to escape over them. And the lions and the tigers escaped with just a few minor burns. Children were being thrown up and over the cages to get them out. And bodies were actually piled so high by these chutes that the firefighters actually found people alive underneath the pile of bur- the pile of burned bodies because they were protected by the other yes. bodies oh, so oh that i mean you just had people shoving into these things trying to get out and the oh. pile of bodies got so high that people underneath were protected from the fire you know what this is reminding me of is the nightclub fire in, in was providence, Rhode Island, station right? nightclub fire yeah. i don't think it was in providence i think it was in warwick yeah. or something but that whole area uh-huh. <laughs> is basically providence to me but yeah the station mm-hmm. nightclub fire mm. like we That's already horrific. said i cannot imagine being in a huge crowd when there's absolute panic i just cannot Mm -hmm. because people push and shove you when they're just trying to go get a drink during Mm -hmm. intermission so i can't imagine if there was a true emergency Mm. um people were stacking up at the other available exits in a frenzy and pieces of the burning canvas were raining down Mm. from the top of the tent and falling on people and burning them which was just adding to the chaos and screaming and panic Oh, it and must have been smoky too. Correct. Right? Can't and see and hot. So it was oh. already hot and humid, ninety degrees in July under that tent. It must have already been a mm. hundred, a hundred ten degrees, and then you add the fire to it. 
And you would think that it would be easier to vacate a tent during a fire than a building with solid Mm. walls. And for some, that was true. Some people were able to use pocket knives to slash open the sides of the tent to get out. You know, other people, I think, were able to just like duck under the flaps of Mm -hmm. it, depending on where they were. Uh, But others were not so lucky. There were some people that were trapped high on the bleachers or in the middle of the bleachers where they couldn't get down. Um, Some of the people that were higher up actually jumped off the back onto the straw below. They were just willing to risk any sort of injury to avoid the fire. Uh, And in addition to the bleachers, there were those sections of seating made up of loose chairs. Mm -hmm. And in the chaos, people were just knocking them every which way. And they ended up becoming this tangled mess obstacle that people couldn't get through to get to the exits so those were keeping people from getting getting out um ushers and circus personnel were trying to put the fire out with buckets of water but Mm -hmm. the fire spread so quickly you know many people described it as just a fireball like Mm -hmm. they said that once it started it just it just roared across the tent And there's actually a well-known picture of a clown holding a bucket of water that he was bringing to put out the fire. The clown was called Weary Willie, and he was a character created by the famous clown Emmett Kelly. And just a small little uh, break in the horror. When I was a child, like probably between 8 and 10, I would buy those giant boxes of makeup that you would get at like cvs or walmart like super cheap 20 bucks mm-hmm. with like every color of makeup and my dad asked me if i was studying to go to emmett kelly's school of makeup oh. and the joke didn't land on me <laughs> no. then no. but now that like and he told me he's a clown and now it's just really coming full circle yep. for me you know mm-hmm. reading about emmett <laughs> kelly i appreciate the break <laughs> yes yeah just take a breath i believe Whew. that thing was called a caboodle that it, had all the yeah, makeup there in were it. caboodles, yes, caboodles. And, and also they had like the legit train cases. Like you open it from both yes. sides, and eighteen trays of just garbage makeup open out. <laughs> Love it. What up, fellow '90s babies? <laughs> <laughs> the brighter the blue, the better. <laughs> okay, that was good, right? We needed that I needed break. That was good. very heavy. So he, Weary Willie, is the sad-looking hobo clown with ragged clothes, a dirty derby hat, and a frown painted on his scruffy face. I will post the famous picture of him carrying the bucket of water, but again, he's one of the things that we see all the time that you would never think of. I think they have like precious moments made after him. Like he is like the iconic sad, scruffy Mm. hobo clown. So um, he was actually supposed to be a part of the Flying Walenda show, and he would actually run around underneath them and would spread out a handkerchief like to jokingly catch them if they (laughs) fell because they operated without nets, which good, good for them. Easy. Yeah, good for them. So when he heard the screams of fire, he acted quickly to grab the bucket mm. that was he was pictured with, but he realized when he got there that his efforts would be futile, mm. so he just acted quickly and pulled up the canvas to begin ushering out oh. children. Oh. And that famous picture of Emmett Kelly is the reason why the day of the fire became known as the day the clowns cried. Oh. Within eight minutes from when the fire started it burned through the tent support poles and support ropes causing the big top to crash down onto oh. those who had been unable to escape it's not dawning on me that this would have been made of wood all the support and everything right i'm assuming it wasn't metal so. because especially with this being wartime you couldn't use metal for things like that and they probably right. wouldn't have it was probably too expensive anyway so even if it was metal it melted though oh, i mean the goodness. fire was burned that hot wow eight minutes from when it started to when it came crashing down. That's insane. To get 7,000 people out. 
So one of the reasons that the fire may have spread so rapidly was due to the waterproofing on the canvas. You may be wondering how they waterproofed canvas mm-hmm. back in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Wax? Was it, with, nail, um, was it a nail polish remover? <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> it was with 6,000 gallons of gasoline. <gasps> what? Used to thin 1,800 pounds of paraffin wax. Like there was a wax. <laughs> <laughs> there is wax, yes. It was a candle. Oh, basically, yeah. it was a God. giant candle. No wonder it came down in eight minutes. I'm shocked it lasted eight minutes based on what it was made of. In May 1944, circus workers had boiled a mixture of three parts Texaco white gasoline and one part standard oil company yellow paraffin wax and applied the mixture to their new big top roof canvas using watering cans to sprinkle the mixture, which was then brushed with brooms. <laughs> So I'm speechless. I that's insane. It is, yeah, and that's why they think that it just took off the way that it did. There, some people, you think? some people <sighs> said that the gasoline additive may have evaporated after a few days, and they think it may not sure. have contributed to it. Fine. Um, others think it just made the canvas far more flammable. Yeah, but you think about too. Either way during the fire pieces of this wax coated canvas mm-hmm. so the canvas is like protected it's burning like a candle and it's just raining down on people and sticking to their skin Ugh. and clothing and hair and just burning them and it just furthered the panic and frenzy of those trying to escape so it's raining hellfire down on these people inside of the tent and literally they- and i think so i didn't really think about how I would feel listening to this story, but I I suffered some pretty serious burns a couple years ago um, from uh, isopropyl alcohol, which is like the stuff, you know, you clean wounds with or that sort of thing, but it's highly flammable. And I had very small places burnt and not for relatively speaking that long. And that was the most excruciating thing I've ever felt in my life at that time. It was also unbelievably scary. And then it was painful, obviously, long after. And that was very small compared to this. It's it's really, I think people don't think about, because you think about like a candle in your house and like you can like kind of stick your hand through it really quick or something like that. I, I think people don't realize how little flame it takes to burn really badly. Um, and I'm just, it, it's just unbelievable listening to this story. It's really like gut-wrenching. Really gut-wrenching. Yeah. I, see, I can't imagine either because I think about if I, if I like touch a pan or something and you get like even yep. just a, mm-hmm. a teeny tiny, just like a little bit of raw skin that hurts in the shower. That hurts yeah. when you mm-hmm. wash your hands. That little spot on your finger will give you like full body chills mm-hmm. in pain mm-hmm. from it. So I, I can't even imagine. And mm-hmm. actually just I have this somewhere else, but it fits right in. It was so hot. That flame was so hot that there was a little boy. He was six at the time. He was one of the people that escaped by scaling the animal shoots, and he ended up covered in blisters on his body. Mm. He was never touched by the flames, but it was so hot inside the tent that it was enough to blister his skin oh just from being in there. A literal oven. Correct. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. It's probably not... There's probably not a lot of air that gets in no. there, too, either. If you think about the tent, it's, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's like bolted down. You could probably get under like little bits and pieces of it, but there's no like windows at the top of the tent. Right. Or no, but right. Like it probably was just right, though, for enough air to come in the bottom and then vent out probably wherever the top little things yep. were. And it probably made this perfect like setting for a fire. Yeah. It just eight minutes took eight minutes to burn it to the mm-hmm. ground. 
Surprisingly, I mean, the death toll is it makes it one of the worst fire disasters in U.S. history. But the official death toll was 168, which if you think of 7,000 people, yeah. that's, it's amazing wow. that that many people escaped with their lives. Wow. Um, the count included uh, one questionable person. It was essentially a collection of unidentified parts that they couldn't pin as an individual person. So they sort of just put them all together and said that that was the extra person and um, said it was 168. Um, Ed uh, Gein has, uh, has entered the chat. Yeah. Yes, he is. <laughs> Throwing it back. Some people were burned to death. Some people died from smoke inhalation. Others had been trampled during the panic stampede to escape the burning tent. A hundred of the deaths were children, and 59 of those deaths were children nine or younger. Mm -hmm. Three more people would die in the following months due to the injuries from the fire. I was wondering that. There were also nearly 700 people who were injured during the fire. That number may actually be low, as some people who were injured probably just went Mm -hmm. home to process the events Mm -hmm. of the day and weren't officially treated. The chaos of the burning tent was replaced by the panic of parents and family members frantically searching for their loved ones. Bodies were laid out on army cots in a nearby armory for families to identify. The bodies of six people were not identified, and there were six other missing people that were never found. Mm -hmm. The bodies of the six unidentified victims were actually buried in graves marked with the coroner's ID number in Northwood Cemetery on the Hartford-Windsor line on July 10th. So about six days later. No, four days later. Math. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, I thought July 4th, but it's not. It's July 6th. (laughs) There was a seventh body, that of a dismembered baby that was cremated. Mm -hmm. Uh. The plots were marked with a plaque that notes, it is a resting place for three adults and three children, their identity known but to God. The most well-known victim of the fire is a little girl that was called Little Miss 1565, which was the number that she was assigned by the coroner. She was a little blonde girl wearing a white dress who died of asphyxiation. She was well-preserved except for a few burn marks on her face, but no one came to claim her. And this really bothered people. Mm. Um, we will post a picture of her on the Instagram as well. Hartford Police Sergeant Thomas Barber and Sergeant Edward Lowe were obsessed with finding out who this little girl was. Sergeant Barber actually had two children who planned to attend the circus, oh. but they hadn't gotten there yet when the fire broke out. <sighs> Sergeants Barber and Lowe took dental impressions, fingerprints, footprints and photographs of little miss 1565 and they showed her photo to everyone who claimed a body the night of the fire they visited local orphanages the welfare agencies with her picture and they also sent her picture to every primary school in connecticut Mm. to no avail Hmm. and this little girl i mean like you can plainly see who she is so they were just like stunned by the fact that no one had claimed her every year on memorial day christmas day and july 6th the two sergeants brought flowers to the little girl's grave in the northwood cemetery sergeant barber actually laid flowers on her grave for those three days every single year until he died in november 1977 and after his death local florists actually continued continued the tradition In 1991, a Hartford arson investigator, Rick Davey, published a book claiming that Little Miss 1565 was a little girl named Eleanor Emily Cook. Eleanor's brother, Donald, 
worked with Rick Davey uh, to establish her identity. Rick Davey had interviewed Eleanor's family and gotten her history, information, and photographs of her. And he brought the information to the chief medical examiner at the time, H. Wayne Carver II, who we talked about when we discussed the Richard Crafts case. Oh. Mm-hmm. Carver issued an amended death certificate for Little Miss 1565 to officially identify her as Eleanor Cook. She was actually exhumed from Northwood Cemetery in the 90s and was reburied with her family in a cemetery in Southampton, Massachusetts. And she was laid to rest next to her brother, Edward, who also died in the fire. Ten years later, another author published a book arguing that Little Miss 1565 could not have been Eleanor. According to the book, the dental records did not match, and Eleanor Cook's mother had insisted all of her life that the child was not Eleanor. We'll post pictures of Little Miss 1565 and Eleanor on the Instagram for our listeners to see and compare. But I'm sort of thinking um, these sergeants took dental impressions, fingerprints, footprints. Mm -hmm. I would assume that uh, Dr. Carver had those at the Mm -hmm. time that he issued the death certificate for her. So my thought just on the surface level is that he had enough information to say that it was her and that her mother just couldn't identify that little girl in the picture as her child. And I think once you say that's not my child, it would be hard to say, Mm. no, I was wrong. Like, that's my that's my child. But But I have many questions. So my first question is when you said the that the sergeant or whoever in the 90s worked with her brother, who did who did they work with to say that it was? Eleanor's other brother, Donald. Oh, 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 okay. All right. So that was my first question. At least two brothers. Her brother Edward died in the fire. Her brother Donald worked with Rick Davey to identify her. My second question is, if that's not this woman's daughter, where is her daughter? What is is she saying her daughter, where her daughter is? I think she just may have been another missing child. I mean, you think about it too. They had these bodies. They identified these six bodies. Mm. They had that seventh child that was cremated. But then they also had the collection of bones that they identified True. as another individual who died. So there, it's also possible that there were people that were killed under the tent that mm. they didn't even identify. Did Was her mother at least like in agreement that her daughter was at the circus that day? I believe so. Okay. I believe <clears throat> so. So it is possible. Because her, yeah. her brother Edward was there. Right. So I, I assume. Yeah. And again, so if she's denying that that was her, I think it was just one of those, mm-hmm. like, I said, it's not my daughter. It's not my daughter. But, you know, and then where is she? You sound like a horrible mother if you couldn't identify right, your child right. because what mother doesn't know her right. ch- her own kid? Yeah. Right. And then, I mean, they must have been pretty sure to go exhume her body and yeah, then and move her. her. Right. Which is also inter- interesting that she was, they allowed her to be buried with that other, with that family. Right. I mean, and he issued the death certificate saying it was her. So he Hmm. would have to have pretty substantial evidence in order to conclude that it was her. Hmm. Sad across the board, though. Yes. Very sad. The five other bodies remain unidentified even to this day. Hmm. In April 2019, the chief medical examiner sought to exhume two bodies to collect DNA to try to ID the victims. They were exhumed in October 2019, but the DNA sampling was ultimately unsuccessful. They said the condition of the remains had a high bacterial content that inferred with the testing. Mm. My thought is that these five individuals were family members of friends of people that also died in the fire, so there was no one to ID them, although that was not the case with Eleanor Cook. 
Mm. But that makes the most sense to me mm-hmm. that there was no one to claim these right. people because they were gone. And if it was the mother and kids, then it's possible the father was at war, like we talked about in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, and unfortunately, not everyone returned from war. So Correct. it's possible you just had that entire family wiped out. It's even worse. Imagine returning from war and nobody knows where your family is. Oh, yeah. oh I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Sorry you for taking me to <laughs> that very dark place. You're going to have some nightmares tonight, guys. Sorry. <laughs> there were definitely, I mean, they have done, you know, 50th anniversary. They interviewed people who survived it. And, you know, there were kids who lost both of their parents in the fire, siblings. Mm-hmm. I mean, aunts and uncles, just devastating, devastating. I mean, the pure PTSD from this. I don't know if you'll get into that, but just seeing what you must have seen, experiencing that, I don't think you would ever get past that. So the biggest question is, what caused the fire? Mm. Yes, I'm literally dying to know. Yeah. Connecticut officials believe the fire was started from a carelessly discarded cigarette. The circus tent was essentially a giant candle, Mm -hmm. and the workers had failed to put up no smoking signs around the tent, which, let's be honest, probably wouldn't made much of a difference back in 1940s when everyone smoked everywhere. Mm -hmm. Others believe that the fire was arson. Hmm. And why do they believe that? Six years after the fire, police in Ohio arrested a man by the name of Robert Dale Siege for starting a number of fires in 1950. It's the three names again. Mm-hmm. Sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> While being interrogated, Siege confessed to starting the fire in Hartford, along with other fires in Maine and New Hampshire, and also confessed to murdering four people. Siege claimed that the figure of a ghostly Native American riding a flaming horse, who he called Red Man, told him to start the fires. Not the direction I thought you were going. I, I, I don't know where, don't know what I, I thought. Nobody but. can see Laura and I, but we had to look away from Marina as she was saying this, so we wouldn't laugh because this is the most absurd thing I think what? I've ever heard. Okay, so, so Red Man told him, Red Man, right? That was- yeah, he calls him Red Man, told <clears throat> him to start the fires. Mm-hmm. And kill the people too, also. And then went on to have a successful hip hop career many years later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So Siege was 14 at the time of the fire, and he was working as a roustabout for the circus in the lights department. What What's define <laughs> roustabout? It is a unskilled laborer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I may or may not have Googled that immediately before we started recording because I knew that you were going to ask me what it meant. Is it exclusive to circus-related jobs? I don't believe so. Okay. I believe you can be an oil roustabout. (laughs) Why'd you pick oil? a carpet roustabout. (laughs) I believe oil is what comes up on Google, if I'm recalling correctly. Oh, okay. (laughs) Anyways. Siege joined the circus on June 30th, 1944, in Ooh. Portland, Maine. On that day, a minor fire on the circus tent ropes was extinguished without damage or injury. The circus went on to Providence, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. where a tent flap mysteriously caught fire. That fire, too, was extinguished without loss. No one knew what caused those fires, but Siege confessed to setting both of them in 1950 also wondering why those were able to be extinguished and not the um the hartford one apparently fire is not uncommon especially Mm. with people smoking all the time Mm -hmm. and throwing cigarettes and they have hay and straw Mm -hmm. and sawdust 
and they actually keep buckets of water under the stands and everything mm. and they have like water trucks outside so it's not uncommon right. for there to be small fires my question and i don't know if anybody knows the answer to this so this guy joins the circus seven days before the hartford circus fire happens and then like in the span in between those seven days two fires happen and the circus performers are all upset because they missed the matinee show there's a bunch of bad juju everywhere Mm -hmm. like this had disaster written all over it i don't even know that i have a question in this i'm just like piecing together all of the parts and being like holy shit i would not have gone to the circus that day i would have called that sick yeah oh yeah Definitely. But again, you're hearing all of this in a vacuum. And if fires are common and they were yeah. very small fires that got put out, you wouldn't be like, oh, OK, these two fires happened. This guy joined because at least two other people joined the exact same two day that he yeah. did. So oh. you can't pinpoint it again. Okay. You're hearing it. Sigi said someone shook him and quote, when I came to, I was standing on my feet with my clothing and shoes and stockings on. And I ran in and tried to help with the people. So he's saying that he just blacked out. And when he came to the fire occurred, Uh he described his feelings at the time that he came to. He said, I was excited and afraid and I never had that feeling before. And he said that he kept having bad dreams about all of these people. He said, I actually did feel at first that I was responsible for it. But as the years went on, I tried to tell myself that I wasn't. But lately, when I've thought about it, I feel that I'm fully responsible Hmm. So he's off his rocker, is what I'm gathering. He is. So he later recanted his confession. Um, He was a paranoid schizophrenic and was uh, committed to a state hospital for treatment. Okay, so I say off your rocker lovingly. For that condition, yes. But I mean, like, you sort of probably would have gotten the paranoid schizophrenia vibe with, like, the red man telling him to to set the the town on fire. There was suspicious behavior of those who may have worked with Sigi at the circus as well. One man was an electrician with him, and he said something like in the hospital, quote, I'm not squealing, and Hmm. said something like, I never knew it would be like this, and Hmm. I don't know that I can take it. So he said all these things to this this woman that was in the hospital, and she thought it was suspicious enough to sort of flag it for people who were investigating it. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And and he again, he worked in the elect- electrical department, and that's where Sigi worked. There was a third man who signed on to the circus, also in Portland that day, and he disappeared after the fire. Mm. His name was Roy Tuttle. He was found admitted to the main general hospital days later and was treated for third degree burns. He allegedly told people he knew how the fire started, but never expanded beyond that. A Connecticut investigator spoke to Tuttle in Maine, and Tuttle had said that he helped people escape the fire, but passed out near the animal chutes. He said he woke up in an open lot and spent the night there, then decided to walk home to Maine. Which also with third degree burns, are you kidding me? Yeah, so it took more than a week, and he said that like when the pain just got too bad for from the burns he would find bodies of water to sit in to ease his pain which led to infection and he needed to be hospitalized for that so i mean like that it seems pretty legit 
Yikes. Yeah, it seems like that plan didn't work out as well as he had hoped it would. Right. So his story was questionable as well. Mm -hmm. But so you have these three guys who join the circus in Portland all at the same time. And it seems like those two may have seen something that Mm. they didn't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Did they know each other prior to joining or they probably met that day? I'm not sure. Probably not. I think they were. And I think this was back. I can't remember which one I read it about, but it was like they had a bad family life. They wanted to Mm. like run away from home and join the circus. Mm. That was literally what they wanted to do. I feel like that's something my parents would have said to me as Mm -hmm. a kid. Like, you know how like all little kids threaten to run away and you like grab your like blanket and favorite stuffed (laughs) animal and you go like camp outside until you're not mad anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, I I think that's something my dad would have been like, what are you going to do? Join the circus? And I'm like, yeah, dad, I will. But uh, like, what talent do I have? (laughs) something you can do something something. i can podcast (laughs) (laughs) so as i mentioned sigi was committed to a state hospital for paranoid schizophrenia ohio authorities were certain that he started the fire around the time that he was arrested connecticut officials never questioned him i read multiple accounts that may have been due to a contentious relationship that developed with ohio officials or the Connecticut police simply held fast to the conclusion of the original investigation concerning the discarded cigarette. Mm. I think it sort of may have been both. I think they were very defensive of their investigation and their original findings. So Mm -hmm. I think they like ruffled the feathers of Ohio police and Ohio police sort of just shut down. The investigation into the fire was reopened about 50 years later. In 1993, Hartford detectives flew to Columbus, Ohio, to question Siege about the fire. He said he didn't have to work the matinee that day, uh, and he was seeing the movie Four Feathers in Hartford. That movie came out in 1939 and was not playing at any theaters in Hartford mm. in 1944. Liar. Mm-hmm. When the police asked him about that movie again, trying to pin him into a corner, he backtracked. Said maybe that was just a preview that he saw. He couldn't remember. Couldn't couldn't really pinpoint it. They confronted him with his prior confession, and he said, quote, Yeah, I did say that, but at the time I said it, I was nuts. <laughs> and now I am no longer nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he also told them, uh, reserve your judgment on that issue. He also told them that he has he's a shaman, and he's been a shaman since childhood, and he frequently has visions and he travels between the white man and the red oh, or Indian God. realities. So I'm not trying to judge. I know there are people that are in the circus now and do really cool things. And it's really great. That being said, these are exactly the kinds of people that I would expect to go into the circus. Not surprising. That's fair. Mm-hmm. This particular circus no longer operates, but it has made right. way for other circuses like yes. Cirque du Soleil and mm-hmm. sort of Which different. Which is super cool. Not different acts like that. So excluded from my judgment. So Skigi is that Sigi? Sigi. So Sigi is institutionalized. Is that who we're talking to right now, or this is another guy that no, we're talking to? No, we are talking to, to Sigi. He got okay. out of institution. Now he's just at his. I was wondering if another home said in he... Columbus, Ohio, okay. and Connecticut officials okay. are finally questioning. We can him. probably cut that part out, but I just I wanted to make sure no. like two of them weren't saying the same thing. I'm glad okay. you said that because I also thought okay. it was two people. No, same person. Okay. In response to one question about what he remembered, um, he reminded the police officers that it might not have happened, quote, in this reality. Instead, it may have occurred in another reality because he's an American Indian shaman and he passes between the two realities like open in a door. <laughs> mm-hmm. So 
I actually was speechless there. I uh-huh. I had a lot of things going through my head, and <laughs> the words are not them. So that's actually how the investigators felt. They oh, actually said that this guy was difficult to interview, and they couldn't really figure out whether he was being li- whether he was lying or being truthful. You know, the police said they typically look for certain tells yeah. or you know certain signs that people are lying, and this guy just didn't have them. Hmm. But I want to say. When you have someone who genuinely doesn't know what is reality and what isn't, they are telling the truth in a way that is not the way that we tell the truth or lie. So I can see how that would sort of happen. Mm -hmm. Siki died in 1997. Uh, Before returning to Connecticut, one of the investigators left his card with Siki's daughter and told her to call him if he made a deathbed confession. Hmm. But they never received a call. Mm. The investigators ultimately had to conclude that the cause of the fire was undetermined, Mm. but the newer investigations cast serious doubt on the prior finding that it was a carelessly discarded cigarette. The lieutenant who wrote the book, Rick Davey, worked and researched for nine years and determined that the fire was deliberately set. And his conclusion was based on new techniques and a review of very old documents Mm. in the, I'm sure the bowels of the state library. Mm -hmm. He actually presented his findings to a panel of federal arson investigators at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and they agreed that a cigarette could not have started the fire. One of the agents was a key researcher in a California study in the 70s that proved that a cigarette, even if dropped into dry hay or grass, could not ignite a fire if the relative humidity was above 23%. Oh, and it was really humid that day. Interesting. On the day of the circus fire, the humidity at 2 p.m. when the afternoon show began was 41%. So there's no way a cigarette would do that. During the two-year re-examination, Dr. Henry Lee... uh, Henry Lee! Yeah, we know Dr. (laughs) Henry... We know and love him. He performed burn tests and also confirmed that a lit cigarette on grass alone couldn't have Mm -hmm. started a fire on the day as humid as the day of the circus fire. But they also noted that in a circus environment, there could have been trash or other Mm. items around that area that could have ignited. So that's why I sort of interrupted you. Yeah. So like it could not have but if right. it if the circumstances were right and there was a piece of garbage there and it lit on yep. fire, like it could have mm-hmm. lit the gasoline wick candle on fire. <laughs> this has to be so frustrating for the people who are looking into it because there's just no definitive answer. There, then like we just said, I, right? I was convinced it wasn't going to be a cigarette, and it's like, well, right. <laughs> not with just hay alone, but if there's right. something else for it to catch on, and like, how are you supposed to figure that out ever at this yeah, point in time? I don't think right. you can. And to this day, the question of what or who caused the fire remains a mystery. Wow. I am shocked, though, looking into this, that people people have continued to research this and mm-hmm. to bring this up and to reopen this and to use re- resources, state resources on this. Like, that was really surprising mm-hmm. to me hmm. that people still care and they yeah. want they want to yeah. know and they want answers. I'm guessing there's a lot of descendants of people that perished in the fire or were there that are interested in this. So wouldn't it be surprising. Yeah, I mean, people that were there are still alive today. Exactly. And for, the, for them to exhume bodies to get DNA, mm-hmm. for the court to rule that they can dig up those bodies yeah. I mean, p- there are people who are interested That's crazy. In, in getting answers so in addition to investigating the cause of the fire there was also an investigation into the fire safety measures mm-hmm. and how such a tragedy could have occurred mm-hmm. 
Back then, city codes addressed a number of fire safety measures, including the number and size of exits, placement of fire extinguishers, flame proofing, and other safety criteria. But those rules were focused on buildings. Mm -hmm. There were far less strict measures in place for temporary venues like the Big Top. A Hartford building inspector had issued a permit before the stands were even up in the tent with no discussion of any safety measures, exit widths, or flame proofing of the tent. The Hartford Fire Department was never notified that a permit had been issued or that the circus was even in operation, so they had no one on site at the time that the fire broke out. Which is why there was no one on site. The alarms Mm -hmm. went off and they had to get to the Mm -hmm. circus because no one was there. Investigators found that there were 30 pails containing 12 quarts of water (laughs) beneath each of the bleachers, but only a few of them were used to try to stop the fire. Well, and honestly, like 12, you can like drink 12 quarts of water in a day. Well, Maybe, 12 not. quarts of water in each of the 30 pails. Oh, okay. <laughs> not, not total. Okay. Not total. That's a little more. Yeah. Maybe maybe just the fire was like too vast. People were panicked or something. Like, right. I, I'm just thinking they're like. Maybe there were a lot of very thirsty patrons. Maybe. It was very hot in there after all. I mean, it's very hot in our podcast studio right now as it well. Is. I would drink that bucket it's, water. It's sweltering. <laughs> it's fitting. The circus truck also had fire trucks filled with water. But they were more than a quarter mile away when the fire broke out. They had been used prior to the performance to water the animals and sprinkle the dusty Mm. grounds. The circus had 36 fire extinguishers, none of which were inside the tent that day. Mm. They were buried and inaccessible in a storage unit. Investigators learned that when the band started playing the warning song, the the flames were about five to six feet high. And could have possibly been contained by a fire extinguisher Ugh. at that time. Ugh. And they should have known better. Two years prior, the Ringling Brothers had a serious fire that killed 50 of <gasps> their animals. Ugh. But fire safety was clearly not deemed a priority based mm. upon their actions. Do we know how many animals died in the Hartford Circus fire? I believe none. Okay. I'm very sad for the people, but I'm happy that yeah. no animals were. Yes, I I recall Googling it, and I believe that none of them died. The lions and tigers had some minor burns, but all the animals were out of the tent at wow. that time. It was just the big cat show that had just exited. Oh, and it Got was it. the like the trapeze-type artists, people yes, who were performing. that it. were up, correct. So after a night of questioning, uh, canvasmen, performers, and roustabouts, six circus officials were arrested on charges of involuntary manslaughter. And I just want to note that in researching this, the articles were all over the place as to how many circus officials were arrested. (laughs) Some said four, some said five, some said six. I saw like an actual newspaper clipping mm-hmm. from this time that said six and had the okay. names and their titles and uh. what they were sentenced to. So that's what I went with to make sure that I compassed everybody and had all the information <laughs> um, to the extent that that may be different based on other historical documents. I accept that. Just let me just let me know. Doesn't sound like you accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm very self-conscious about it. Six officials were arrested. Uh, Those men included James A. Haley. He was the vice president of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey, and he was also a director. 
Edward Versteeg. He was the chief electrician. David Blanchfield, chief wagon and tractor man. George W. Smith, general manager. Leonard Aylesworth, chief tent man. And William Cayley, chief seat man. It's Colby. I'm sorry. Colby's giggling. I'm sorry. No, we're... chief tent man and chief seat man. What great titles! Oh, <laughs> we're I... giggling about wagon. We both looked at each other when you said wagon and just mouthed yeah. wagon. The <laughs> animals were, were in the be... wagons. I knew so there were going to be wagons. So many wagons. In the end, they pleaded no contest to the charges and spent approximately a year in prison before receiving pardons. When they were originally sentenced, the court stayed the execution of their sentences so that these officials could get the 1945 season of the circus started. They said that the stay of execution would allow the circus to rebuild its damaged equipment, which would benefit those suing the circus for the deaths and injuries caused by the fire. Because... Go ahead, Colby. You have a question? Uh, uh, no, I'm thinking it benefits them because the circus pulls in money. There's more money in the pot for people with the lawsuits. Yes, they needed the mm, profits okay. to pay for the okay. lawsuits. Less than 48 hours after the fire, the first lawsuit was filed. The circus was sued by over 500 claimants. Hell yes. Ooh, yeah. With the state of the docket, which was already three years behind at the time mm. for jury trials, it would have taken about 10 years to try all of these oh. cases. Rather than tie up the courts for years and years with all the lawsuits, mm. the claims were arbitrated by a panel of lawyers through an arbitration agreement that was signed in November 1944. The circus waived its defenses on liability, so the real question was just damages. So is this like the first uh, class action type lawsuit? That I don't think it's the first, but this is sort yeah. of a class yeah. action type lawsuit yeah. with arbitration agreements and, you know. Makes sense. Yes. There were 169 death claims, hmm. the damages for which were statutorily capped at $15,000, equal to about $195,000 in today's dollars. Like per person? Mm-hmm deceased person you're suing for or per like person filing the lawsuit well it would be per deceased person okay so like if four of my family members were killed in this and well, i well you get one per yes it'd be what? it'd be fifteen thousand per person which i guess Ouch. you can put a price on life that's what i was just thinking it's Ouch. not a lot it's mm -mm. not a lot um 551 injury claims above two hundred dollars 112 claims under $200 and 35 claims were not allowed. By August 1950, the circus paid just under $4 million in reparations to victims and their families, and they were able to avoid bankruptcy thanks to this arbitration process mm. and the procedures that the judges and lawyers put into place. The settlements were paid ultimately from insurance policies and the profits that the circus made as it continued mm. to run. Because that was four million in nineteen fifty-five dollars. That's or what I'm trying to do the math on. Right yeah, now. go ahead, yeah. Google that. It's so, so that, one dollar in nineteen fifty is equal to twelve thirteen today. Okay. So four million times twelve thirteen. It's a lot of zeros. Give me a second, guys. <laughs> uh, forty-eight point five million. That's hey, I lot. said fifty million. That was you were really close. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But is it for one hundred and sixty-nine <laughs> people? It? Yeah. Well, oh, but then there were also like the injury claims that went along with it. Yeah. So I don't know. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Maybe my life is not as valuable as I think it is. Now I'm having an existential crisis. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Marina. You're welcome. You're welcome. Drink. 
<laughs> mm-hmm. So when tragedy strikes, sometimes the only good thing that we can do is learn from it. In this case, the use of highly flammable waterproofing was discontinued. That's good. Good. Hartford and other cities around the country changed how circuses and other carnivals were allowed to operate. Mm. And because of all of these changes and the lessons learned, not one single American life has been lost in a commercial tent fire since the Hartford Circus <gasps> Fire. Oh, wow. That's insane. There is a memorial for the Hartford Circus Fire in Hartford. It's behind uh, the Wish School on Barber Street in the same field where the circus was held. The memorial was dedicated on July 6th, 2005, on the 61st anniversary of the fire. There are several plaques that describe the timing of events at the fire, and the center plaque sits exactly where the center, center ring was in mm. the big top and has the names of each victim from the fire embossed on it. That's nice. I'm surprised it took 61 years to do a memorial for it, though. Right. Yeah. But that's a nice memorial. It is. And there's also a circle of dogwood trees that outline the shape and size of the big top tent. Which actually be incredibly interesting to get an idea of the size yeah. and magnitude of that of that tent. Field trip? Yep. Okay. Oh, I think so. I, def- trip. I really can't. So I ha- I'm, I'm geographically challenged and I'm spatially challenged. Mm-hmm. So if you said a hundred feet, mm-hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't, t- I don't know if that's between me and Colby. I don't know if that's between me and my house. <laughs> that's like half a mile away. Like, I don't know. So I too Is it in be, Torrington? It could, <laughs> Where no, they- because there's no grocery store in a hundred feet from Marina and we know they're only in Torrington. <laughs> so I, I would be very interested to see the size. It helped me with the Mohegan Sun Arena mm. with the 7,000 people yeah. and how big that is. But yeah. like 1.5 acres means almost nothing to me. Yeah. It's like three times my yard if you looked out like back like off the deck like three times like that's so huge Mm. it would be really interesting to see though um just in that space and then to see the memorial i think would be really meaningful we're gonna take a grim field trip yep and that is the case of the hartford circus fire and the day the clowns cried It was, it was a tough one, guys. Yeah, that was that was really hard. It was. It, it was, was a lot really more. <laughs> it was a lot more intense than I thought. <laughs> oh, sorry. Pun intended. No yeah. pun intended. We're where, so where are used you on to that? talking about like murder, like premeditated yeah, murder, mm-hmm. and like even if somebody did start this fire intentionally, I feel like it probably wasn't with the intention of killing a bunch of people. Like, no. We've talked. A lot of people get like thrills from setting fires, and like if it's common in a circus environment, right. they probably thought it could be put out. Right. But like. So this was this was different for us. I yeah. didn't know how this was going to go, and I, I, I got to say, you got me shook. It mm. was, and it's it's definitely on the mystery spectrum because yeah. they don't know if it's arson, they don't know if it was an accident, but it is a hundred percent horrific, regardless mm-hmm. yep. of what caused wow. it. But if you're enjoying listening to Grim, <laughs> what a strange plug! Love, fire, and murder. <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) Guys, if you love us, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. 
Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos and for you guys to check out Little Miss 1565 mm. and decide for yourself whether she is Eleanor Emily Cook. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you listen, learn, and stay alive until next time.